Good morning, everyone. My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to take theological principles and biblical stories and narratives and really all the genres of scripture and help you immerse yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune in to this online broadcast each and every week. And ways you can support our ministry is first, follow our Instagram page. Then you can like our Facebook page. You can listen to this online broadcast, of course, and please make comments and ask questions underneath in the comments box of whatever social media uh, channel you listen to. You can financially support our ministry through our website, resonatelife.org, under the Give tab. So at the end of this broadcast, we're going to hopefully be together for about an hour. We are live. And so at the end of this broadcast, we're going to prepare uh, for communion, we're actually going to take communion. So we want you to prepare for that now for the end. So if you have any juice or wine or bread, please go get that now. So I am joined today by Pastor Jake Flug and Shreya Bodner. Uh, these are two of my leaders at Resonate, and I believe that they will add immensely to our discussion today. I'm excited to do this topic and uh, walk through this topic with them. And today's topic is called Construction deconstruction, and did the stories of the Bible actually happen? So welcome you two. Thanks for joining today. I'm excited to have this discussion. And everyone is on, right? Correct. Yep, we're here. Awesome. Hi, how are you? Good to see you. Okay, so the reason why we're meeting today in this fashion is because either we were tested positive for COVID or we don't want to be around those that have tested positive for COVID. Um, so many of our leaders actually this week came down with COVID. And so we uh, decided that this week it would be best to not have in-person gatherings to try to not expose one another to more and to stay healthy. And especially some of our vulnerable population that come to church uh, we didn't want to run the risk of either somebody coming and not knowing and being in our building um, for long periods of time that way, so close and singing and such. And so I am recovered, I think, as far as I can tell from COVID. I tested positive for COVID and um, kind of had a short, short, short bout of it. So I am pretty much healthy, I think, and got a little nasally thing going on, but uh, I did test negative and tested out negative. Um, I was down for a couple of days. Jake is still um, dealing with COVID, and so he is in isolation, or has been in isolation, and Sharia, you have not tested positive yeah. for COVID. I'm still waiting on my results. Okay, so we're waiting on Sharia's results, been but it's Okay, so no symptoms for Sharia, but uh, definitely she has family members that are vulnerable and definitely not wanting to expose them to COVID. So she is in the basement today in her bedroom, right? Yep. Stuck. All right. So, uh, so today's topic, we're discussing, we're kind of pre-gaming because we were supposed to start our series on Exodus and to try to give an outline for where we're headed in the future here this year. 
is we are walking through uh, Exodus until Easter. So we are doing just section by section. Next week, we're going to intro it. I think we're going to have to smash some weeks together since we're missing this week. Um, But then starting on uh, Easter, we're doing a special series that I'm just basically stealing this title. Uh, It's called The Atlas of the Heart. And this is Brene Brown's newest book, Atlas of the Heart. And we're walking through some biblical concepts of where we go when we experience certain emotions. So sometimes we go to good places. Sometimes we go to not so good places uh, in our emotions. And so when we experience different traumas, crises, or joys, or good things, whatever they are, we go to different places. And so that is the Atlas of the Heart. We're going to spend some time there until summer. And then all summer long, we're going to spend the entire summer going through the women of the Bible. So we're going to start with the Old Testament, going to the New Testament, and covering one week of the saints of the church, walking through the women of the Bible and exciting series through the summer. And then two New Testament books in the fall. So we're going to, we're going to walk through two New Testament books and really excited about spending some uh, time in the New Testament. So for the purposes of this time, uh, what we're doing, somebody actually I saw yesterday wearing a sweatshirt that said the game is won in the pregame. And I thought that was funny because we all know what pregaming is, I think. So pregaming is when you drink before the party. But, but uh, pregaming, this is the pregame to the game. And so we are going to win the game by doing a good pregame. The reason why we are having this discussion today is, number one, we had to go to an online format and just change everything we were doing. So what are we going to do? But then I really was inspired uh, by the two of these two in, in their input and discussion about deconstruction and construction and how we as a body of people need to spend some time exploring and also having an honest discussion about the stories of the Bible and our own uh, exploration of deconstruction, how what we learned in Sunday school or what we learned for years and decades might not be reality. It might not be the truth. It might not be what the Bible was intended to speak. And so we, uh, we've formed different opinions, different thoughts. We've had different stories in our heads about what was true And then all of a sudden we wake up one day and read something or discover something new. And we go through a crisis of faith at that point and we end up deconstructing. And some people as of lately, I've watched deconstruct to the point of just flaming out of Christianity. And I don't think that that's necessary. I don't think we need to do that. I don't think we need to flame out of Christianity because we found out that maybe the, the story of creation was more of a, of a story of bigger metaphor of, of a bigger like concept of God and, and humankind. So, so I think that it's important to have this discussion before going through the book of Exodus, because when I read some commentary on the book of Exodus, um, my own little awakening about Exodus is this, and this is where this conversation bursts from. The challenge with the book of Exodus is not 
the book of Exodus, it's me. So there's a people problem, not a Bible problem. And so my problem with the book of Exodus is this. Nowhere in archaeological findings, there's no external evidence that proves or shows that the Israelite people in any way were in Egypt. So I'm going to say that again. There's no archaeological or external written paintings, hydrogos on the wall, carvings, statues, nothing. There's really nothing that proves that the Israelite people were in Egypt. That is a big problem for me because the Exodus story is an important story to the entire Bible. And so if I use the same tools that I would use for like New Testament stories and was Paul here and, and did this actually happen? And did, uh, did the whole riot in uh, great as the Artemis of the Ephesians and Ephesus, did that actually happen? And, and so if we start digging around those sites, we find archeological evidence and external writings um, like Josephus talking about the people of the Bible, or in fact, talks about Jesus. The historian Josephus actually externally talks about Jesus. So if I use those same tools for Old Testament stories, I run into some challenges and I run into challenges with dating. I run into challenges with archaeological history and evidence that shows nothing when it comes to whether or not the Israelite people were in the places that the Israelite people said they were in. So I'm challenged with that. What do I do with that? Does that break down my Christian faith? And we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about that today. So let's get into it. Just a, a heads up for everybody. I am reading the comments. And so if you, good morning, Becky, Rob, Beth, uh, if you do comment or have a question, we will try to address it as we go along, or we may just address it and then say we're going to a different time, but know that you are being watched and that we do want you to comment. I mean that in all goodness. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Jake. So let's have a preliminary conversation about construction and deconstruction. I think we need to define some terms, I think. So, Trey, you take this. What What is oh. construction, deconstruction? Yeah, jump in. Um, so I'm going to try and do this off the top of my head, but Richard Rohr has um, illustration of three boxes. Um, and he uses the terminology construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. Um, so the first box construction tends to be, um, what we were given, um, the stories we learned in Sunday school, the, um, structures, the methods that we grew up with, um, that probably weren't challenged, at least not when we were young. Um, and so those are the things that we carry with us, um, but usually something in our lives happens that calls into question those stories or structures. Um, and that leads us into the second box, which is deconstruction. 
And this box can be really disorienting because it's everything that we thought we knew gets turned on its head and we don't know which way is up and we don't know which pieces to keep and which pieces we can trust. Um, and hopefully we are able to find ourselves and find God in that second box. And that usually leads us to the third box of reconstruction. And this is where we're able to examine things and find the things that fit and let go of the things that don't um, and come out with a stronger and more trusting faith. Awesome. So what, what are the things that you believe can cause or spark or be the catalyst for deconstruction, for that process to begin? What happens? Um, well, like you were talking about with the book of Exodus, maybe we come across a piece of information that we can't ignore. Um, there's no record of the Israelites having ever been in Egypt. What do we do with that? Um, if our stories and structures don't allow for that. Um, so something that produces cognitive, cognitive dissonance there. Um, or I think another experience that can lead us into deconstruction is um, like an experience of loss or grief um, where we find it difficult to find God's presence. Um, and that opens up questions that are more experiential than text-based. Yeah. So what's really, what, what was really interesting in the life of our church is, you know, we've gone through a uh, evolution of, of thinking and thought and, uh, you know, there's foundational ideas when it comes to scripture, but like Jesus, faith, faith in Jesus is foundational. The resurrection is foundational, crucifixion, resurrection, the gospel message basically is foundational. And then you have a lot of the periphery, you know, that's like non-foundational. So I think that there's a lot of evolution that happens in thinking when it comes to the peripheral type ideas. And when we were having a preliminary discussion before we jumped online here, we were talking about a mosaic. And if you could think about a mosaic of art made out of pieces of uh, broken glass or broken pottery or whatever that and if you put a cross in the middle of the mosaic the things that kind of hover around the cross in the mosaic are the things that are what we'll call essential or non-negotiable so there's non-negotiable things in scripture that i believe are just non-negotiable so if you're going to be a christian if you believe in jesus that's that that belief means a few foundational things um that jesus died on the cross, resurrected from the dead, and is God. So that is a foundational idea. And then you have other foundational ideas that I just use the, the phrase, that which is connected, or the sentence, that which is connected to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is foundational, it's non-negotiable, and that which is not connected to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is foundational. There are a couple of things though, that I would connect to the death, burial and resurrection of Christ that we can talk about much later in a different discussion that maybe people would question. Um, but, you know, we need to come to an agreement on those things that what, what is gospel, what is not gospel. 
So, so when we enter into discussion, like, like for example, Sharia, when you and Bethany Stoller preached on Sunday morning for the first time, it was the first time we had uh, a woman and then we had two women uh, preaching the gospel. You guys were preaching from the front. Oh my gosh. You know, it's like, that's a mind blow. That was a mind blower for some people. And for me, it's like, I believe that all, all gender is equal. So, you know, you and Bethany and me and Jake, and we can serve in any capacity in God's kingdom that he calls us to, to serve. It's not based on gender. And so there's scriptures that allude to cultural uh, challenges with gender, yet those we've processed through and we can come to the conclusion that yes, the preaching of the gospel is the greatest calling that anyone could ever have in their life is the communication that Jesus is alive. And that's shown that right after the tomb, we have women preaching the gospel right through the history of the church. But for some reason in, in the church, all of a sudden this becomes an issue. Mind blower for some. They bolted. They couldn't handle it. Then Jake and I preached on, uh, there was a topic called um, Satan. What was it, Jake? Satan? Uh, uh, oh, gosh. Demons? Demons? Satan, Satan demons, and something. It wasn't the Undead series, was it? No, no, no. It was Satan. It, it's basically Satan it's column, and demons uh, and go goblins. And I mean, we were talking about hell. The topic was hell. And we gave some alternate options to a literal burning pitchfork devil <laughs> hell. We gave, an, we gave an alternate option to that. And I didn't realize how that would affect people. Um, for me, you know, that discussion has been alive in my, in my discussions and my people groups and such. And we talk about hell. Is it literal? Is it a literal place? Is it a metaphorical place? Is it a literal furnace? Is it a metaphorical furnace? I mean, what are we, what are we talking about when the Bible alludes to these ideas of, of hell? What is the gnashing of teeth? What is a literal eternal suffering? Is it annihilation? Is it, what is it, you know? And mind blower, just people just could not Thank handle. You. I don't know who's resonate on Facebook, but it's Satan, demons, and zombies. It was our title. Thank you. Yeah. So honestly, it's like, it's like what these topics, like all of a sudden just blow people. It's like you took my Jesus away when you say, well, annihilation could be an option or, you know, maybe the literal hell that we've always believed in is not really the way it's, it is. And it's not really, that's not the, the truth. You know, maybe there's something different. And it's like, you took my Jesus away or something when I say, well, Maybe the, maybe the book of Jonah is a story that's a beautiful story of redemption, salvation, uh, the metaphor of Jesus in the tomb and three days later. I mean, we have all this like beautiful stuff in the book of Jonah, but the moment somebody says, well, maybe, maybe that was a story and it's not necessarily a historical story. Maybe it's a story. All of a sudden you take my Jesus away at that point for some reason, or, or it like, discounts the word of God. Yes. 
<laughs> Say something. <laughs> Earlier, we had talked about um, literary, literal readings rather than allegorical readings. And every part of scripture had its own method and its own writing style, its own genre, its own historical context. And so you had this, this battle to read very literal, allegorical. Do you read it prophetically? Do you read it, did it already happen? Is it going to happen? Where is it going to be at? And so in, in the construction of all of this, we can hardline one over the other where it should be a balance. And the story I gave was this uh, origin was a guy back in the 300s and he took, uh, sorry, some, someone is messaging me about this morning. Uh, he took the cut off that which binds you like your left hand should be cut off if you steal basically and cut off the uh, castrate himself and for the rest of his life after his very literal reading he was only allegorical <laughs> and so your affect becomes the opposite where we should have a very balanced view of literal where some passages if we take literal you know, people can go back into slavery. Women will be oppressed. People will like, do horrible, horrible things where it was set in a time, it was set in a meaning. It does have validity, but we need to look at it. What, what, what spiritual principles can we pull out of it that doesn't necessarily have to be the literal exact meaning? Yeah, spinning off of what Sharia said with construction and deconstruction with Richard Rohr, is that who you, mm -hmm. do you remember what book he wrote that was, we can look it up later. Um, Pulling upwards. It wasn't that, was it that one? Okay. Falling upwards. Falling upwards. Okay, very good. So Richard Rohr's Falling Upwards talks about the three boxes uh, so one is deconstruction, one is construction. No, one is construction, one is mm -hmm. deconstruction. And then what's the third box? Reconstruction. Reconstruction. Okay. So the problem with what, what era of theology and church and Christianity that we're in right now is there's a lot of online social media uh, whether it be writings, memes, cartoons, sayings, quotes, people are just throwing a lot of information out there that, that it rips on Christianity. It rips on the church. It tears things down. It says, you know, basically scoffs at all that we have promoted and believed and, and been a proponent of for centuries. And then all of a sudden now we're in this era of let's just rip it all apart. Yet, I don't think it's healthy to rip on our Christianity, rip our Christianity and our belief system apart without the goal of reconstruction. Yes, we can deconstruct 
our belief systems and what we've always believed. Yet, if we don't have the goal of reconstruction, it's just deconstruction for deconstruction's sake. And I just, I just don't buy into that. Um, some of my friends are there. They deconstruct and it's just, there's no point to it. They just want to rip on the church. I still believe that the bride of Christ is important. The church is important. And we can't just rip on the bride of Christ without putting something back together in a reconstruction state. So there's a guy that, uh, that is called the naked pastor on Instagram. And he, he does a lot of deconstruction and he is a little loose with that. He definitely deconstructs to the point of goodness. Are you ever going to construct anything? Um, I like that what he promotes. I like what he does. Uh, yet, um, I think that there needs to be a little more uh, reconstruction. So he, he uses five stages, uh, Richard Worth's boxes. He uses five stages. He actually takes the stages of grief when we believe something and then all of a sudden we, we don't believe it anymore. We go through first denial and then anger. And I, I've experienced a lot of that with, with others is they go through denial. This can't be true. And then they try to form a different opinion or make up stuff new around their belief system. So they go through a denial, but maybe they get out of their denial and then they go through real like strong anger and that anger. I can't believe you taught me this for years. And usually they're angry at their pastor, their youth pastor, their elders, their leaders, their even their spouse, you know, for, for believing or pr promoting something in their home, their Sunday school teacher, I can't believe, you know, Jesus loves me this. I know for the Bible told me so the Bible didn't tell me so with a, B and C, you know, like they just are angry at their Sunday school teacher, whoever. And then they start his, his stages. Then they start bargaining. Um, they start bargaining with God. God, if you give me something new, then I'll, I'll believe again, or God, if you show me something that I will believe again. And then when that doesn't happen, we fall into a depression. And then his fifth stage is the acceptance of the fact that that belief idea system, or that we just resign to the fact it's not true. Yet I would put a sixth stage. And this is where I find that people are challenged. Like this, this person is challenged with there is a sixth stage. And yes, we can accept that certain things that we were taught are, are no longer true and real. And just they were kind of a made up version. But the sixth stage is not just accepting the fact that that's dead. It's now forming something that is alive. And I believe that through deconstructing something, you can fall in love with God again. When deconstructing, you, you can have an alive faith again. In deconstruction, you can jump to uh, that I can believe in Jesus again. And, and I've watched few people go through that. But I would like to be somebody that really promotes, and I know Sharia promotes this too, Jake too, but Sharia and I have talked about it specifically that if we can get to that sixth stage or the, 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 
Richard Rohr's third box that we we can be actually effective and alive Christians. So, Trey, I want you to take us into the book of Exodus. Okay. Um, Specifically the book of Exodus, but we talked about the identity. So what are we talking about with the book of Exodus here? Yeah. um, So we've hinted a little bit about um, how we read and understanding uh, the genre of a book. Um, And I think one of the things that is really helpful when we're um, understanding what Exodus is and why it was written is that we need to look at um, how it was written and when it was written and why it was written. Um, And Jake's gonna go into this a little more um, soon. Um, So if this is new, it's gonna be okay. You'll learn some things, Um, but Exodus was probably compiled mostly during the Babylonian exile. Um, So that's quite a ways after Moses, um, quite a ways after events would have happened. Um, And if we look at what's going on for the Israelite people during this time, um, they've been conquered by a foreign country. If they weren't killed, they were taken to another country. Their temple was destroyed and God lives in the temple. So where's God now? They're not able to practice their feasts and festivals. Um, They're having to learn a different language. Everything about their culture and who they are has been taken away and they have to find a new way forward in a completely different culture. Um, And it was during this time that the scribes started to compile stories about their history and their being. And it had to do with reminding the people of who they were, of who God was, of how God relates to them, how they relate to God, uh, how they relate to the world around them. Um, And so a lot of the Exodus story is a reminder, this is who you are. Um, and we see that repeated throughout the scriptures. Um, one thing that gets repeated, especially through Deuteronomy is behave this way because you were once slaves in Egypt. Another thing that gets repeated throughout the entire old Testament, um, is we see God say, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Um, and this reinforcement is a reminder. This is who you are this is God's relationship to you. So I find that more beautiful than whether or not this, you know, T is crossed and I is dotted historical accuracy of whether or not this story historically occurred in the exact way that it occurred. Yeah, I mean, what I you just said there, yeah, I, what you just said there is a is an incredible uh, conclusion, but also like I can find myself in that. So if I could, if I could just think about that for a second and go, wow, there's a lot to that that you just said. That's our, our metaphor for deconstruction, huh? You find yourself in a place you don't recognize and you're <laughs> yeah. disoriented yeah. and God right, says, this right. is who you are. Yeah. 
Well, one of the things that's beautiful about the book of Exodus is Exodus, well, first, before I get into that a little bit, Exodus, there's different types of genre of writing that, and Exodus is a very specific genre of writing. So you have historical narrative, which, you know, you have archaeological and factual things around historical narrative. So we have a lot of historical narrative that we have archaeological facts and in museums and such that show this, this occurred exactly the way that we know it occurred. And here's the evidence, you know, at the Smithsonian to, to prove that, right? Um, and then we have a historical myth. And historical myth is like, the movies and the the shows Avengers. So so with Avengers, you have like these superheroes, and Captain America is coming in to save the day, or whoever you know, whatever has the superpower of the moment. And but but you have cars, you have office buildings, you have people walking on the streets, you have cities, you have you know a certain time frame. It's a historical setting, but the creatures and the and the uh, characters are fake. They're not real. And that's historical myth. So uh, so Avengers, if you can think about the movie Avengers, the Avengers series, that's a historical myth. But then you have mythological history. And mythological history is the book of Exodus, where as soon as I say the word myth, you go, okay, is he saying it's fake? No mythological writing is a is this is the story of the gods and it's a story of god and really the book of exodus is the story of god and it's mythological history so it's it's not necessarily the story directly about israel it's the story about god and how he acts and handles israel and what he believes about israel what he believes about the people and it's about god and so mythological history is the genre of, of Exodus. And what's beautiful about Exodus is Exodus is not necessarily this, this story of, of, it's not a new story. It's actually a retelling of an old story. And the retelling of the old story is actually creation. And in creation, God looked over and hovered over the deep or the chaos in the very beginning of creation. And in Exodus, the plagues, all of the plagues of Egypt are considered the chaos. And when God split the water at the Red Sea, that is creation, God separating the water, exposing the land. And you see the splitting of water as salvation. So all through Old Testament, the splitting of water becomes the idea of salvation. So you have in the creation story, you have the splitting of water, that's salvation. In the Exodus story, you have the splitting of water, at the Red Sea, that's salvation. So Exodus becomes a recreation. When they're out in the wilderness, that's the, the wilderness of 40 years, correct? 40 years, yeah. Is it 40 years? Yeah, 40 years of wilderness. That's an important number, actually. So 40 years of wilderness, that's chaos again. 
And then Joshua going into the promised land. That's the, again, we see the splitting of water. That's a splitting of water that we sometimes forget and we just gloss over. There's another splitting of water and that's salvation in the promised land. You advance forward, you see in Kings, you see splitting of water in Kings. You see Jesus and the baptism splitting of water in his baptism. And then ultimately Jesus splits the curtain. And when, when this curtain is split, ultimately the entrance into eternity is therefore ushered in. So the idea of Exodus is a beautiful identity piece and also a recreation piece to retell the, retell the story of God. So Jake, take it away when it comes to canon. Like, how did we get this Bible in the first place? And like, put it together for me. Like, Exodus is the story of a book, but there's a lot of other books. In this is too. going to be very, very broad sweeping. And so there's, I'm, I'm going to use some terms that you may have to look up later. And if you have any questions, go ahead and post them into our chat. And if you are new with us on it, um, if you would please... Uh, we're going to take communion at the end together. And so that's how we're going to, to finish our time. So if you want to grab the elements now, you can do that. Did we lose Kevin altogether? I don't know. No, I'm here. Okay. Thank you. So you just need to adjust some things. Okay. <laughs> the, the Bible is composed of 66 books that we have in our 66. Help me out. Jurea. Yep. Okay, thank you. Uh, 66 you, books. You, you laughed, so I'm like, I just had to question myself. And so it was not always this, this way. We didn't have a Bible, we didn't have scripture, we didn't have a set text until almost 400 years after Jesus died. We had books that were circulating, we had writings that circulated, we had things that were generally accepted as scripture, especially the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and some of the prophet writings were accepted. Some of Paul's writings were becoming accepted as scripture, but we did not have the view of scripture that we especially have today. And so there was this council of church leaders that got together and they decided what books were to be put in and what books were to be taken out. And so that's why when you get some Bibles, they have extra books added to them, or you have some Bibles, especially then, and some books are taken out. Um, it was late in history where the book of James, the three Johns, Jude and Revelation were actually in the New Testament. That was a medieval, uh, even 1800 to 1200 AD that we added on those books as well. And so tradition and hymns were greater than any text because people could remember them, people experienced them, and it is in the Bible that we have a collection of these tradition and hymns. So when we talk about the oldest parts of scripture, the hymn of Moses or the, I forget his wife's name right now, but those two hymns are some of the oldest passages or oldest thought concepts that we have in scripture. When you read 
um, when you read Philippians, the, the, the Philippians 2, that is the oldest Christian hymn that we have. When you, when you read the words Maranatha, that is also an old, an old Christian hymn that, that would have been sung. We have these, these songs that construct our tradition. And later on, then it becomes images that construct our tradition because people couldn't read, couldn't read. The literacy rate was, was super high. So then they go into pictures. And so only a certain group of people had the, the power and the, the ability to, to read. And so opening up to the general populace had to be through other means. And so it wasn't until after people started becoming literate, the Gutenberg Bible, um, the Industrial Revolution, that we could, that we could, I have a couple things here. The, I totally lost my place, I'm sorry. Tell me out. People commenting. Yes. Uh, Gutenberg Bible and Industrial Revolution. That we started to put where was, and we'll put it lowercase truth at, was truth in tradition, was truth in the church, the community, or was truth in the text. And so we start to talk about the idea that when truth is broken down, that we have to put our trust into something tangible. And so as we're able to read, we have put more emphasis on the Bible, on the canon. And so when we talk about Descartes, who was a philosopher and a humanist, the Christian rejection of humanism, you can quote the second part of Descartes, which is, I think, therefore I am, correct? But many of us can't quote the first section of Descartes, which is, I doubt, therefore I think, I think, therefore I am. And so we have taken truth off of the person of God and put it more onto the structural writing of scripture. And that's why we have such a, a high view of the canon of the Bible itself. That's why, and Shere is going to talk about this later, that's why inerrancy or the illumination has become so prominent in our culture. So, so you talked about the dating. You're saying that the Song of Moses is one of the oldest writings that we have oldest thoughts that we have oldest thoughts that we have yeah it would have been oral tradition um right tim asks didn't ancient egypt frequently erase or attempt or attempt events and periods of time they didn't want remembered from their records is that my dad i asked that question when we were talking last night yeah, totally. <laughs> so yeah, so that was a big question. Sheree, I want you to take that. Like, you know oh, the answer, so. Um, yeah, but I asked it and you were the one that answered. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Well, it so that is a that is a major um, argument for the lack of evidence, right? That's a major mm -hmm. argument. So I'm going to give it credence that that is an argument. Yet that's not the way that Egypt uh, behaved in uh, consistently behaved. They consistently spun stories to make them out to be the gods. So Pharaoh was considered God. And so they spun the stories to make Pharaoh look more like God. And so they would have taken that story and they would have spun it in some way. The, the challenge is, is that there's no writings. There's no pictures. There's no paintings. There's no, there's no carvings or statues. That's the challenge that, that, uh, that is had because they were really good record keepers and they would have consistently, they would have taken that story. Um, that is the Christian argument to try to uh, normalize or try to, to package that. So, so remember uh, the naked pastor's first denial. I would put that in that category that once we find out, wow, there's no evidence we go through a denial that can't be true. So therefore there has to be another reason. And then we stop looking at the, the consistent behavior of the Egyptians. We, we try to insert something that we just really can't insert. Plausible, yes. And that's, and that's, that's the thing with, with mythological history is everything that's written in the book of Exodus is plausible. It definitely could have happened. I'm not saying that it wasn't plausible. What I'm saying is that there's no evidence around Israel being in Egypt. That's all I'm saying. So, so with that fact, okay, how do we then begin to begin to have a discussion around Exodus that that is not um, so legalistic or so um, historically on a time frame like Sharia did, she brought a narrative to the table that was much more beautiful and much more meaningful to my Christian life than any historical timeline could ever produce. Um, the question that I have for, for anyone is, does it have to be historically accurate and historically true in order for you to uh, declare it the word of God? This is the, uh, the life of Pi argument of scripture. Right. That the better story. What's the better story? <laughs> right. The better story is the one that, that makes the better point. Right. And so when we start to put words like true or not true, we take away the meaning of the point based on historicity and historical rather than what message is trying to be conveyed that you were once slaves, so act better. Right. If we stick right. With and I, and I think honestly, honestly, for me and my faith in Christ, I am a very, I would say I'm a very conservative Christian in theology and very liberal in practice. 
And in my conservative theology, I take a very honest look at scripture. I allow scripture to speak for scripture's sake and allow scripture to be what scripture is supposed to be. A liberal, I think, irresponsible thinker and theologian would try to make scripture do something that scripture was never intended to do. And that's, I, that's what liberal, that's on both that's liberal of liberal versus conservative, where people that right. usually turn themselves as conservative are actually being they, more liberal with yes. their understanding and their abuse of scripture. I would say so. And honestly, like Exodus doesn't have to be historically on a timeline as accurate historical um, in order for it to be the word of God for me. I believe that, that the word of God is the word of God. And, and if it's a story, great. If it's, if it's historical and, and played out the way that it played out, awesome. And is it plausible? Yes. It doesn't have to be in order for it to be the word of God for me. And that's, and that's, what, that's what I'm challenged with with some of my legalistic friends where something has like the seven days of creation have to be the seven days in order for it to be the word of God. And it's like, well, where does it say that it has to be? I don't, I don't understand that. So was it even meant to be? So we have six minutes. Oh, until our hour. Well, we can yeah. go a little longer. I don't know. People are just dropping like flies or they add in. No, we're good. <laughs> uh, oh, good. Maybe we'll see here at 11 what happens. But uh, <laughs> Renee asks, isn't that where faith comes in, the intersection of faith yes. and plausibility? Yes. I think our fit, well, yes and no. Maybe you guys could add to this. Um, again, at least scripture is script. Yeah. Scripture is scripture. And I live in 2022, believe it or not, <laughs> 2022. I don't live in Exodus days. I have no idea what happened back then. I have no idea, like the context that I don't have even a feel for the lay of the land. You know, I don't even know. I don't know the culture. I don't know anything about it. So for me to look at scripture with face value, I can never look at scripture with face value because number one, it, it has a different face than my face, completely different face. So for me to look at even the New Testament at face value, I have to look at the cultural context, the, the history, what's surrounding it, why. Um, there's challenges with my traditional views of the books of the Exodus with dating with language, with the way things were spoken, like the Song of Moses. The reason why we know that's one of the oldest thoughts is just the Hebrew that's used. The Hebrew that's used for the Song of Moses is some of the oldest Hebrew that is just known to our, our history. So, so understanding the, book, the, the, the context is just almost beyond my my scope of, you know, ability yet, yet the, I believe the Bible is alive and the Bible is like a living word of God for me. 
and can be. And, and just because something doesn't have evidence doesn't mean that it's the word of God. And that's where I can put my faith. I don't need to put my faith in a notion that something is historical. Does that make sense? Unpack that for me, Sharia. Make that make sense. <laughs> um, do you think it's a good time to talk about inerrancy and that'll kind of yeah. tie it together? Sure, sure. Um, so we've hinted at this idea of inerrancy and scripture being inerrant. Um, and a shorthand definition for that would be that there are no errors in the Bible, which sounds great. Um, but that's usually taken to mean that everything the Bible says is historically and scientifically accurate. Um, and so when we assume inerrancy, I think that it assumes that the texts are trying to do something that they aren't actually trying to do. Um, is the story of Exodus an identity story or is it a history textbook? Um, and those are two very different ways of reading, two very different ways of understanding what the text is doing. Um, another example would be the creation story. If we take it as a science textbook, then the text would mean one thing, but we would miss all of those things that um, Kevin teased out in his sermon where you have all of the sevens and the parallels, good, good, very good. Um, and so we lose the deeper meaning that a scientific reading doesn't allow for. Um, an illustration that I've found helpful is um, if we look at a great work of art like Van Gogh's Starry Night, um, it wouldn't make sense to look at that painting and say, well, is it inerrant? We can ask questions of whether it's true, whether it's meaningful, but inerrant is the wrong category. Um, another thing that inerrancy does is requires us to constantly be in fear of any new discoveries. Um, so if we think that the Bible is trying to make a historical or scientific claim, any new historical or scientific developments is automatically a threat. Um, and so we aren't able to, we aren't able to learn anything new. And I think those are the challenges with inerrancy. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a challenge with our Christianity, mm -hmm. especially right now is we've been stuck in a certain what thinking pattern or things have, and, and we pick and choose. That's the problem with our Christianity now is we pick and choose what's historical and what's right. not historical, right? And that, that really is uh, a challenge. We need to allow the Bible to, and this, these are your words, Sheree, these are not mine. You, we need to allow the Bible to be what the Bible was meant to be versus what we're telling it to be. And that's, that's where we've been. We've told the Bible what it needed, needs to be. And that's actually a very wrong way to look at scripture. And that's where, in order to understand, we need to stand under 
And so the Bible, I need to submit myself to this scripture of like, the Bible needs to speak what the Bible is intended to speak, not what I'm trying to categorize it into. Um, but a lot of us, like me, I come from a tradition in Christianity where if it's, you know, seven days of creation, everything happened exactly the way that it happened uh, historically, whether there's, you know, whether there's pots and, and old stone houses in the ground or not, you know, it happened the way that it happened and dinosaurs and humans existed in the same, you know, in the same you know, lands at the same time and all that kind of stuff that we were taught, uh, you know, and the more deconstruction of those ideas we go through, it's like, does that rock our faith or does that help our faith? And I think it, for me, it's helped my faith as I, as I rethink um, scripture. So to go back to Renee's question though, about faith, I don't have, faith in a history, objects, or even a text. I have faith in a person. And so I think that's what the book of Exodus teaches me. It's about God. It's not about kings and queens and rulers and subjugated uh, people groups. It's not about that. It's about God. And what he believes about all of that. And so, so we put our faith in God and a person of Christ first. And the moment that I put my faith in a text, see that the New, New Testament Christians, they didn't even have a text. You know, they didn't have text. They had like one text that went around to all the churches maybe. But they, they had stories, they had narratives, they had retellings. Um, their faith was in a person. And, and I, I think that's where we need to really land on um, as Christians. And our faith is in the person of Jesus. It's okay for awkward silence. I just need to <laughs> no, okay. group a little bit. Yeah. We can bring up problems now. I can take that. Okay. Oftentimes you'll hear the, the phrase, the problem with scripture or the problem with the Bible um, or the Bible has problems in it. Um saying that it has problems is like going back to uh, Shirea's Van Gogh illustration that the Bible doesn't have providence. It doesn't, it's only when we start to weaponize it that it gets problems or not problems depending upon which camp or what reading you're willing to do with it. And so scripture problems you know some of it may be uh that there's no archaeological evidence for the israelites being in egypt or there's no archaeological evidence for the conquest of canaan or they're in the scripture they use names for people groups that 
wouldn't exist for another 200 or 300 years. Or if you look at the second, the end of second Samuel, it's a copy and paste from the end of second Chronicles. Or, I mean, there's, there's lots of, there's lots of things that could be problems, but we're not looking at it as this is a human main document to reflect the person of God or the personality of God, I should say. The, the problem then is a person problem, not a passage problem. And so what do we do with that? How do we abuse it? How do we, how do we reflect on it or make it applicable to our lives become the problems? that we embrace with it. Um, I think I may have already used the illustration that, you know, slavery can be justified in using certain passages if we want it to. You know, we can also look at that as a, as a cultural time and how do we apply that to our lives today where people in the rest of passages are equal and even that passage is to fit in the equality of people. It's just we read it as a subjugation of people. And so what do we do when we hear something new is also an issue. So if Shariah has a different telling of a passage of scripture that, that may be different than what you grew up with or different than what you have thought before. Do you sit with that? Do you reflect on it? Do you let it speak where it needs to speak? Or do you immediately fight against it? Or do you accept it blindly without doing your own research is also an issue. I think we have, there's another camp that we don't really talk about and it's the early adopters i would call them of of deconstruction where at the first sign of trouble we take the most extreme view and then that just blows out completely and so there are some passages that i think the problem becomes how it was translated from the earliest text to today um we use that resonate the common English Bible because of how it translates three different passages. The first one is in, oh gosh, uh, the Corinthians, where it is the faith of Jesus, not the faith in Jesus that saves you. And clearly in, in, in the original language, it's the faith of Christ but in how we have to construe that and construct it so it fits in within our thought paradigms and on our theologies, we have changed it so it's a personal reflection rather than Jesus' view of faith. The second is in Romans, where Junius or Junia, one is masculine, one is feminine. In the original writing, it's a feminine apostle. But in many traditions, apostles cannot be female. And so in many translations, they have put an S on the end of that name 
So it's a masculine name. Um, there's a few other passages as well that we, we look at, but the problem becomes, how do you, how do you really dig into it unless you like take on scripture for yourself and say, I, I have a duty to research, to own it myself and to have my own view of scripture rather than what's just told to me. Fair. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, if, if you think about really just all of the stories that we've learned, uh, you know, I'm almost 50. So, you know, my Christianity is about, let's say, you know, 25 or 27 years old. Right. So like, like that's, that's my, let's say my, you know, Christian life is, is a quarter of a century old. And I think about what I learned 25 years ago to what I know and have explored now. And what I know and have explored now is much more beautiful and meaningful and honestly has saved my Christianity uh, versus what I learned 25 years ago. 25 years ago, you know, the things of Genesis, the things of Exodus, the things of, you know, Jonah, Job, you know, all those, those Old Testament stories um, that many of us know were constructed in a certain way uh, and were very hardlined to speak a certain message. And as I've explored and grown and matured in my faith, I've always been a thinker and an explorer. You know, I mean, I've explored all over the world. So I love to explore. And I think about if you are an explorer of any kind, I think about those that have like, you know, traveled into South, Central South America, you know, and how we've explored Central and South America and how beautiful it is down there. And if you're any kind of explorer, you know that new things are just fascinating. Like you go, wow, that's just amazing. But if you're not an explorer, they, they become threatening. And so those new things all of a sudden, like, oh my goodness, you know, what did, well, I was lied to, you know, <laughs> 25 or, years ago, I was rejection. lied to. <laughs> yeah. Or, or whatever. So, so we become very, <clears throat> very threatening. And, and so then we become threatened even by people that, uh, might just have a just a, a slightly off different narrative than our own. It's kind of like the parable of the talents, you know, and thinking about the parable of the talents and the possibility that that might not mean exactly what we thought it could mean from Sunday school class. It, it doesn't. Um, I know, but like all of a sudden we explore something new that becomes like a threat, but, but a, a better reading of that is more beautiful. It's inspiring. It's incredible, actually, versus a more traditional, older school view of the parable of talents. So let's. Uh, let's... Rob, Rob just posted something. Yes. I'd appreciate yeah, a list Rob. of books I could read, slash, listen to when it comes to deconstruction, reconstruction. Well, Rob, you are in luck because we have compiled a list together. <laughs> that Sharia can post here soon. Um, 
Can I? I'm not logged in to resonate. Do you want, I can get those out soon. Um, I'm not logged into resonate either. I'm not sure who is, but we can uh, do that. Um, we'll post it on our, on our Facebook page that you can gather those resources together. Um, a person that we, two people that we reflect to probably the most in this is Peter Enns and especially the sin of certainty, but also Kevin is going through his exodus for normal people. Mm-hmm. Um, the other person that we go to a lot is Diana Butler Bass, especially in her People's History of Christianity, where it talks about a different perspective of people's history. Ours was when history is compiled from voices of those not in power. And so it's, it's the, the people's retelling of history. And so there's other people's history out there. This one is just the people's history of Christianity. Um, another one that I, I go to is Roger E. Olson's The Story of Christian Theology. Uh, we don't have that one posted on it, but if you do want to go insanely deep, go with that one. And then Sherea has a few podcasts that she listens to that um, that can, she can post and they can move forward. Is there a way just to drop that document into the comments eventually? Eventually. Like a PDF. So if you, we'll try to do that. We'll yeah. get that done. I want we'll to somehow. shout out one more. Go Rachel Held Evans, inspired. Yeah. Inspired, yeah. This one is excellent. She is a brilliant scholar. So this all started when, and this discussion for me started with my researching for this series, Exodus. And to just recap a little bit, I came across the notion that there's no archeological or external evidence, writings, paintings, statues, uh, stones in the ground, pottery on the floor, anything, that we can find that shows any evidence that the Israelite people were in Egypt. There's a lot of thoughts around that. We've had thoughts like, wasn't that Egypt's way of erasing that history because it was an embarrassment to them? We've had thoughts like, well, maybe, maybe we just need to have faith in that history. All of those are great questions and very viable questions. Uh, The question that I have rolling in my head is the question, do we really have to have the historical evidence to declare this, the word of God? And does it have to be a historical timeline to be a valuable story and the word of God? And I would say, no, it doesn't. It doesn't need those things. I don't need historical evidence to declare something, the word of God, and to be a meaningful story, that's a trajectory for all of my Christian history. So I don't need that in order for that to be true. So even if I deconstruct the notion that this is a historical account, I still can construct a very beautiful relationship with Jesus with God 
that's based on that uh, narrative, that story. And with mythological history, like the book of Exodus is, it has a different meaning and different purpose than a retelling of history. That's what Sharia just said, is it doesn't need to, it, it's not meant to tell a history, it's meant to tell a recreation. It's meant to speak recreation versus a historical Pharaoh, Israel, slavery, getting out of it, even, even the details of the story. So there's so much more to it. And I hope that for our congregation and for our pod that are out there, that, that we would really, that we would really embrace the story versus the history, that we would embrace the identity versus the history, that we would embrace the beauty, the mystery versus the history. So let's conclude with a couple of thoughts because we are at 1118. Let's conclude with a couple of thoughts. I, you know, first of all, I'd like to do this again because this was fun. And I think that the three of us have enough in our heads because we research, learn, and have studied enough that we can speak off the top of our heads sometimes. Um, at least every once in a while to do this sometimes <clears throat> to do this again. So do you guys agree with that? Do you like, to, I'd like to do this again. Anyway. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he went down. <laughs> um, house of cards. Shreya. Yeah. That's your terminology. So let's, let's conclude with that. Let's uh, let's just kind of talk about the house of cards, the Jenga model versus let's go back mm -hmm. to the mosaic model. So we got the Jenga tower, the house of cards versus the mosaic. So take it away. Let's, let's conclude with your thoughts. Okay. Um, I don't remember where I heard this illustration, um, but it's a way of looking at faith, um, whether our faith is a house of cards or whether it's a mosaic. Um, and when our faith is a house of cards, um, when something stops adding up and we pull out that piece of card and we look at it and maybe we say, hey, this card says there's uh, no historical evidence that the Israelites were ever in Egypt. As we're looking at that card, um, the rest of our house has completely fallen over. Um, and so if that's our picture of faith, where every card is dependent upon every other card for the structure to stay standing, um, it's really fragile. If we're looking at our faith as a mosaic and we come across a piece that maybe the color isn't right anymore and we look at it and it says, well, there's no historical evidence that the Israelites were ever in Egypt. We look at it and we look at our mosaic and we go, maybe this one doesn't really fit anymore. And we find another mosaic piece that can fit in its place. Um, and I think this is a healthier and certainly more stable way of looking at faith that um, it's safe to examine the pieces. Um, and in fact, healthy to examine the pieces and find the things that work and find the things that may no longer work 
and maybe we pull a piece out and after some examination we go you know this this piece really does still belong here and we stick it back um we can't do that with a house of cards but with a mosaic we can and it still creates a beautiful picture good job it's wonderful so shreya can i still be a christian if I don't believe the Bible is a historical account. I think so. I think Jesus probably thinks so too. <laughs> what's, what's required? Faith in Jesus, faith of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we, I think we kind of uh, come back to that crossroads again, where, uh, believing that something about the Bible is it does, it's not a Jesus plus thing. It's not Jesus plus that. Jesus and Jesus alone is the reason for our faith and why we have faith and um, who we have faith in. And so that's where we need to land, I think, no matter what we believe about the Bible. or We're going to explore lots in the book of Exodus. And I'm really, uh, really excited for it. And there's going to be a lot more of, of discovery and there might be some really, really new things that we come across. And my hope and my prayer is that we would not be afraid of those things and we would embrace them and that we would uh, deepen our faith and our faith would become more beautiful and more meaningful. And through this time that we would be able to construct and reconstruct um, something that is lifelong lasting and can weather weather many many storms um, in our lives so jake are you going to lead us through communion i can yeah i'll give we are taking communion together for those of you who might be new to the stream right now so i'll give you about 20 seconds if you want to go hey art if you want to go and grab your uh, elements now we can do that together probably we worth mentioning with, yeah go ahead well just that um i mean the three of us and certainly more people in our church kind of nerd out over these conversations so if we didn't get to comments or questions right in this moment you know please reach out we'd love to talk i did yeah. post uh, on the group chat, the the list of resources that we have compiled for this conversation. Um, awesome. It's not in the best format, but I think you can get the gist of it. The you want to you were talking about something, Kevin, right before. I just said came, awesome. No, you said like we came down with COVID. <laughs> oh. I think you're talking about oh that. yeah yeah just to recap the reason why we did it today is because many of our leadership contracted covid and so we decided to not do in-person gatherings and so if you if you got something out of this um we want to hear from you uh if At this was important you to COVID. you yeah <laughs> you didn't get covid through this um so so if you if you, you know, want this again, let us know. If you enjoyed this, if you have questions, let us know. Um, I'm going to turn that side of it over to Jake and 
and he'll monitor questions in the future. And if you want to re-listen to this, I think it's going to be replayable, right? Yeah. Where you can replay it on Facebook and you can just kind of just just as got hacking at the beginning though, please. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and you you can deconstruct everything that we had to say if you wanted. Um, but please be nice about it. That's all good. Skip over stage two of anger. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so going to communion. On the night that Jesus betrayed, he took the bread, dipped it into the juice, and said this is the symbol of the new covenant, take and eat. And we say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Straight Father, thank for you it. for... Oh, oh, sorry. Go for it, Kevin. <laughs> You're good. All right. Father, thank you for our time together. And thank you that you um, have allowed just this space that we can go live and have an open discussion without um, any hindrance, that we can just talk about who you are and what your Bible was meant to, to be. Uh, Lord, help us to always to see the Bible for what the Bible is and allow scripture to speak to us the way that you want it to speak to us versus putting it into our little boxes or our house of cards. So Lord, thank you for Lord Jake and Sharia today and their insights and their broadening the topic and exploring um, new thoughts that I really have never even thought about before uh, this week. And so, Lord, thank you for them in their ability to help and to um, guide our thinking a little bit in these in these subjects. Lord, keep us healthy. Get us healthy. Lord, I just pray for healing on our congregation, those that have COVID. And I pray that um, this variant wouldn't um, affect us too bad. Lord, that we could recover well. And help us to recover well. Lord, give us lots of rest during this week. Um, Lord, and when we come back on Sunday, if we do, Lord, uh, that would be a celebration again. So, Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. We can hang out for a couple more minutes. If anyone has a question, just post. But we'll, uh, we'll chill, chill here until I think the dr- number drops down. <laughs> It's a good time. Thanks, you guys. Yeah, thank Appreciate you. your thoughts, really. Yeah, totally. So we had some good questions from people. Yeah. Participation. Was there anything that wasn't read? No, we got it all. Rob, thanks so much. I've saved all those titles. Awesome. Good to see you, Art. Art Yoakum, a good old friend of mine, lives in Idaho. Thanks, Renee, for the great questions. Really meaningful. Tim, thanks for that historical piece. It's interesting that you brought that up because that was a major discussion yesterday in the <laughs> in the uh, preparation. Colleen, I actually awesome. love this service and it spurred me on to reconstruction. I've already ordered one of the books from the library. 
I wonder which book. I don't really know how to comment on Facebook. <laughs> oh, good. That's okay. What book did Thanks, you... Lisa, for joining us. Thank you, Lisa. Good to see you. Uh, next time, if we do do this, uh, we will... Um, I'll get it onto YouTube as well. Aaron Rodriguez, thanks. Hoped hopped on towards the end, so I'll throw your watch in the beginning. Lisa ordered. Aaron, up. Aaron Rodriguez, good to see you, Aaron. Good to see you. Oh yeah, you. we didn't list Hope falling up. Falling up, yeah, Aaron. Uh, I hope your dad's doing okay. Been praying for your family, Aaron. So I've been thinking of you. Good to see you. Tell your family hi for us. Aaron is a good old friend from Southern Oregon. Awesome. Good. Good. Well, tell your family, your mom and dad, hi for me. Please do. On my fifth recoli. <clears throat> <laughs> I guess this variant is not supposed to be as, uh, it is for some though. Some people have really gotten sick and others have, uh, have not gotten as sick. So, so everyone needs to stay healthy and mask up and be careful being around people. Okay. I'll I was talking to, to a nurse. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I, was just, I was just talking to a nurse at their hospital that she works in is 110% full. Uh, Chuck is people in the hallways. Chuck is doing a little better. Yes, he does not have much of a prognosis or when he'll get out. I don't know who's still on, but yeah, Chuck Chuck is in the hospital. Actually, he's at the VA hospital right now. Checked in with an infection, and yeah, he's he's doing better. I hear. Okay, I'm going to jump off. Good to see everybody. Thanks, you guys.